0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Two percent, two percent, two percent. The two percent's right over here. Oh, hey, Jenna. I didn't know you shopped here. Uh, yeah,
1: anything to support local food. Know what I mean?
0: I definitely do. Though that's not the only thing you do in the name of Good Eats, obviously.
1: Well, true. I also host Eating Matters every Wednesday at 5 p.m. where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. Be sure to tune in.
0: All right, gotta get the plug in there. I get it. Yep, I'm hashtag shameless. You know what else you can do to support the local food community, right? Well, yeah. Make a donation to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. That's right. And I got to call you out on the whole local thing. What do you mean? Well, The Farm Report, A Taste of the Past, Japan Eats. Those are shows that take you around the country and the world. I'll give you that. So how can listeners give their support? It's pretty easy. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the big red heart in the top right corner. It's pretty easy from there. Thanks. Today's program is brought to you by the International
1: Culinary Center. Offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology
0: to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com.
2: Hi, this is Katie Kiefer from What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Funeral Food by Lake Ryder Eating to comfort sorrow, ease the queasiness of death, atavistic need to feed against the darkness, funeral foods, a cookbook category, soothing dishes laden with fat, concocted with tears, borrowed from ancestors, always at the ready. That's Funeral Food by Lake Ryder from her blog post, Colder by the Lake. And Funeral Food is so much more. Interesting customs that we'll talk about with Sarah Lohman, today on A Taste of the Past. And welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And yes, it's a bit of the macabre to talk about funeral food, I suppose. Well, wait till you hear some of the customs and some of the historic things we've dug up. But indeed, funeral food is is a category unto itself and in a cookbook category. Um, and it's been in the news recently uh for some people in particularly in the east coast i don't know if anyone's managed to catch some of the articles but you know there are around seven or eight states that still forbid any food in funeral homes but the um the states are recently overturning that realizing that people are on their feet standing at a wake for many many hours and they need a little coffee or sustenance cake coffee cake ah huh? yeah cookies We've got some information, some things that you might not be expecting today. My guest is Sarah Lohman, and Sarah is an historic gastronomist. We'll ask her about that. <laughs> historic gastronomist. She recreates historic recipes as a way to make a personal connection with the past, as well as to inspire her contemporary cooking. She has a very interesting blog post called Four Pounds Flour, and podcasts, MSG podcasts, we'll talk about those too. And she has a book coming out in December called Eight Flavors, The Untold Story of American Cuisine. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi, Linda. You're I'm no stranger, to be here. And you're no stranger. You've been here a couple times. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: No, I've, I've been back a couple times and I'm sure I'll be back a couple more too.
2: Well, and your topics range all across the board. What in the world made you start looking at funeral food?
1: Well, it actually has a, a connection to the reason I got started working in historic food. My very first job in high school is I worked at a living history museum, which if any listeners, if you've been to Coney Williamsburg or Plantation, it was like that. But we were doing Western Reserve Ohio history. So 1848 was the year. And every year the household that I worked in, I was in costume and character at 16 <laughs> years old, uh, we did a funeral reenactment. And we wanted to, it to be something very real from the 19th century, so we did a child's funeral. And I did that two summers in a row, that particular funeral reenactment. And to, the memory is so visceral to me. It's, um, there are certain sort of smells and flavors that I can't now uh, separate from this idea of mourning, uh, particularly rosemary. Uh, which is traditionally a smell used to hide the, the scent of decay, and also caraway, which in the 19th century in America, it was rather traditional to pass out shortbread cookies that were often flavored with caraway seeds. So I have these very, very strong associations with it. Later on, as I began my career in working with historic food full time, These sort of ideas of what we do at funerals began to connect with me. I had this experience in the past, but I've been to funerals now. My first one when I was eight, when my grandfather passed away. And I remember sitting in the funeral home basement in Ohio, and, you know, there's cold cuts and bread. And I remember thinking, how can people eat right now? And just those two ideas, the past and the present, made me wonder why food has such a strong association with funerals. And then I was amazed to find that there's been very, very little scholarly work uh, looking into it. There's no one book that looks at the entire history of, of food and funerals. So the research I've done is really just scratching the surface, often pulling from other articles, other books, other sources and oral histories, too. So I'm, a, in a way, by no means, I would call the preeminent scholar on, on food, on a food, funeral food history. But maybe one day I will be because the work is not out there. And to me, well, not just to me.
2: I've gotten so many requests to talk about this topic. It's fascinating to a lot of people. Right. Well, and and the fact that the custom of eating and drinking at funerals or some type of food-related activity dates back as far as history has ever been recorded, and heavily yeah. in the in the medieval period, particularly, yeah. and probably even prehistory too. Right. Yeah. Right. From what they, people can gather from from the bones and mm-hmm. and uh, and detritus left in around the burial sites, it's very. Uh, very interesting. So let's delve into, <laughs> into the history. Let's do <laughs> right. it. Um, it, it. Basically um, if we want to, I mean there. you said um, the caraway seeds and the biscuits and of course not a lot of scholarly work. In, in doing some of my background research just so I knew what to talk about and yeah. ask you a question about I noticed most, you're right, most everything are these postings on people's blogs and yeah. sites but Yes, there's a lot of background and history on the cakes, the funeral cakes and the right. funeral biscuits and and cookies. But a lot of the other activities, not so much. Right.
1: right. And
2: and this goes back. I mean, I, um, back to I guess we could talk pre sin eaters and sin eaters is an interesting topic, topic as well. Two. Yeah.
1: Well, if we go all the way back to the beginning, I look at the evolution of funeral food like this. That in the beginning. Uh, some anthropologists believe that it was an actual physical consumption of the body and we can talk more about that too
2: that's alleged remember alleged <laughs> yeah
1: uh but we can also look uh but some of those That has continued through to modern hunter-gatherer cultures in several regions, up through the 19th and maybe even nearly 20th century, we have sort of a modern counterpart uh, for, for cannibalism, what's known as endocannibalism, which is eating someone within your community for various reasons. From that, it transitions to leaving food offerings for the dead to give nourishment in the spiritual world. And we have documentation of that in Egypt back 4,000 years ago. But even before that, we find food leavings in grave sites. And then it transitions to it being food for the living, In uh, basically because you start traveling to a place for the funeral. People are living further apart, and you need to nourish both the people and the animals, the horses that brought them there. So then we get into this idea of a funeral feast, which in a way, in the modern day, is still what we're doing. This It's a feast for the living, not for the for the dead to nourish the people that are mourning.
2: All right, uh, the, uh, um, the indeed the uh, cannibalistic activities in the Paleo- uh, Paleolithic period. I mean you know there's a lot cannibalism was a part of, of our background in a way so I'm sure that it did exist but yeah, not to dwell on that too yeah. much but it was it was sort of like to carry they would, wouldn't they believe they would carry that with them? Different societies believe different things
1: and I should say that there are two types of cannibalism there's exocannibalism which is a, like a revenge cannibalism or in some way you consume your enemies to consume their power as mm-hmm. well endocannibalism as I mentioned is when it's within the community and uh, it was practiced into the Modern era in um, Australia, in the Amazon, and in Papua New Guinea. We're talking at least 19th century by cultures within these regions. In the Amazon, it was to bring an end to grieving. The idea was that consumption of the physical body helps you break the bonds with the spiritual person and to understand they aren't anymore. Um, in Australia, it was this idea of respecting the dead, too. And in Papua New Guinea, it was the idea of taking on the positive aspects of the person who is deceased by consuming parts of the people who have deceased. Now, there were uh, results of this, too, especially in Papua New Guinea. There was a disease called laughing sickness that is passed on by the consumption of human brains. Um, The last case of that uh, died out fairly recently in the late 20th century. Is that the
2: one that was similar to mad cow disease? Uh, Yeah,
1: a little bit, but in humans. Mm -hmm. And it was all passed through women, and the symptoms wouldn't show up until 10 years later. So there are also reasons in modern society that we don't. Eat, um both humans and primates because it's very very easy to pass along very deadly diseases that way but traditionally it had this very important and powerful spiritual meeting and looking at these modern societies that have other things in common with prehistoric humans we can look at that too and say that this is probably something that was occurring back in our prehistory as well
2: mm-hmm. well particularly the English um which also then was you know a lot of a lot of the um Customs passed on to the colonies, mm-hmm. the American colonies. In the medieval times, there were um, the sin eaters, as they would call them, but a couple different ways that that evolved.
1: Can yeah, you talk about that? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting link uh, in a modern Christian society. So, sin eating seemed to have, well, it. Um, No one is quite sure where it evolved But it was happening primarily in Ireland And other parts of the UK From the 17th century through the 19th century And the idea was if It started as if someone died suddenly There's this fear that this person will will go to purgatory And won't get to move on to heaven Um, But then eventually they, They used this practice no matter what And the sin eater was a person Within a community, although he was somewhat Ostracized by that community That was hired in a way to eat the sins Of the deceased person And this was done in several ways in several accounts I've read either um, the sin eater was passed a piece of bread or um, and or a jug of beer over the corpse that they would then eat. In some cases, the bread is sitting on the chest of the deceased. And in other cases, I've read that may be exaggerations. The sin eater actually sits or crouches over the deceased while he's eating. And it's this combination. It's, it's religious magic is often how it's referred, where it's grounded in accepted religious belief. But then in local communities, it, there are these sort of magical properties that are also put on it. It's the same way that someone who is uh, Christian might also believe in a four-leaf clover, or someone who is Jewish might also believe in the evil eye. They're not part of that tradition, but there's something else. Right. So the idea was that the bread and the beer was imbued with these persons' earthly sins— the sin eater would consume them uh, and then would be paid some money for taking on those sins. And then the person who is dead, the family member, could then move on to heaven. But then the person who had taken on these sins, usually, although not always, was then seen as a rather kind of foul and corrupt person. So it was usually someone who was on the fringes of society already. There's some accounts that say this tradition continued in Appalachia in America into the 19th and maybe early 20th century. But yeah, you can see this connection between the bread... Bread throughout funeral history is actually represented the human body mm-hmm. uh, both well, the physical and the spiritual. how about it,
2: communion and religious services, exactly. the body of Christ? Exactly. Right?
1: Yeah. And it seems that that bread and body connection doesn't necessarily come from that Catholic tradition that it might it, it predates that mm-hmm. and the Catholic tradition came from what was already there. that bread could represent Instead of eating the physical body, you were then eating this representation of it, and that was doing the same things. There's a wonderful tradition in Eastern Europe, and I think in Germany, too, where when someone has died, they make bread and then rest it on the chest of the deceased to rise. And the idea is that as it's rising, it's taking in those positive aspects of the person who is deceased. Then it's baked and served at the funeral, and that's your way to be able to pass on— take
2: that person's— positive energy with, with you, you right exactly yeah.
1: <laughs> so it's also interesting the sort of nuances in what this bread can represent that it can be sin in one culture and it can be
2: the spirit the spirit in another that's right um, it's it's so interesting because um, it goes from people you know wanting to eat this bread or or vice versa yeah. to the you know to as like you say a, the sin eater salt salt was often involved too, yeah. right? Put salt and bread on the, on the body and then the sin would come in. Exactly.
1: And sometimes, uh, particularly at Irish wakes too, it wasn't bread. It was like a pinch of salt, or even a pinch of tobacco too, that was set on the, the chest of the deceased too. So there was throughout history, um, up until really the 20th century, there was almost this direct physical connection with the body and this connection had to do with consumption
2: as well. Hmm. And you know, it, it was, whether it was religious, um, you know spiritual, obviously spiritual mm. then when when um, formed religion and services came in there this was often in conflict with with um, people's religions, and so it was you know they would kind of looked upon as uh Heathens yeah. for practicing this. <laughs>
1: established religious tradition does not like the idea of religious magic because yeah. religious magic puts power into the individuals. And so, you know, we're talking 19th century and before. That is not what any sort of established religion wants. They want you to go to the church. So particularly amongst the Irish that had such strong traditions before Catholicism showed up, things like sin-eating were integrated into Catholic tradition, but the Catholic Church also Hated that, hated these sort of independent traditions of the Irish um, that persisted and really in a lot of those traditions still persist in certain ways to this day and they've become more
2: accepted. All right. Um, there was something back, even, I mean, I know that a lot of the sin eating custom in one form or another existed in the 14th, 13th century and 14, well, 14th century for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, back, even back, uh, the Egyptians had things that they would do um the triangular loaf
1: yeah what so the egyptians that? so if we're talking about we have this prehistory idea of actually consuming the body the first transition was into leaving spiritual nourishment for the dead and this probably goes back to before the tradition before the egyptians but there is an amazing photograph online of a four thousand year old piece of bread and this was left as a as really a temple offering and a in the corner of a period of a burial site. But in Egyptian burial sites, you find all kinds of things like cake, like grain, like wine, like beer, uh, like even cuts of meat too. And then the idea was when that food ran out, the paintings that you see in the wall, the hieroglyphics are often food oriented, not just the hieroglyphics, but the images, the paintings themselves. So once once the physical food runs out for the deceased, then they have
2: this representative food that will turn into real food in the afterlife. After, so they should not be hungry. They will have food. Exactly. All kinds <laughs> of stuff. Right. right. Um, and then, of course, we transition to more, not modern times, but I mean, let's say um, early 19th century, um, late 18th century. The I mean, the idea of Eating cake or biscuits, you know, cake and coffee at Awake, goes back a long time, right?
1: Right. And there's even this transition point about um,
2: 1,500 years ago.
1: uh, They opened up. King Midas' tomb in the middle of the 20th century. He's a real guy, King Mida. Um, And what they discovered was that there had been a big meal right before they sealed up the tomb. Midas is there. Everyone had a big meal of lentils and goat and uh, uh, this sort of wine-beer concoction. And then they left the dirty bowls and sealed up the tomb. So this was a transition point between, that was a meal for Midas, but as opposed to just leaving it with him, it was consumed on site. Yeah. And so that's really the transition between that that older era and this modern era of food being for for, for the living. And we see that, yes, beginning in the late Middle Ages with this idea of Averill. Um, Averill is Old English for Heirs' Ale. So it was a celebration in this case for someone living, that it was the person who was going to inherit the seat of whoever who had departed. So this is obviously associated with lords and people who owed land. Mm-hmm. So that firstborn son, the oldest son, he's gonna he's gonna inherit everything. So it's really a toast with beer and then Avril began to refer to bread that was served when someone departed. First at these very, very high-end ones, but then even at the most simplest, plainest funerals, there were always bread and beer. And if you could afford it, this Avril be- bread was, um, th- it's called cake sometimes, but it's not cake in our modern sense mm-hmm. of the word. It was a sweet sweetened, yeasted, bread might
2: have had some fruits absolutely dried fruits in it it,
1: often spiced again if you could afford it things like saffron things like cinnamon so it was this kind of sweet pleasant cake too so that held that continued that idea of the uh the body and the bread in the middle ages
2: interesting well things then continued to develop and we're going to hear more about it going on to dinners feasts and Mm -hmm. present-day customs when we come back after a short break Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Sarah Lohman, historic gastronomist. We're talking about funeral food. Yes, the uh, the uh, happy and the weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely.
1: And the soothing. And, and the, the soothing. Yeah. Well,
2: as, as the poem I read at the top of the show, you know, a lot of reasons you say, well, how could people eat? You know, you, yeah. you, as a little girl, you said, well, how could people eat at a time like this? And yet after a while, some people do forget to eat because they're yeah. so distraught and people bring, what do they bring casseroles right. to the house? They bring all kinds of, you know, dishes of food that sometimes goes untouched. Sometimes if your freezer is big enough, it fills up the freezer, right?
1: And then the idea of sitting Shiva too, right. uh, traditionally it's the people who are in attendance at Shiva that should prepare and put food in your hands. And it's really that idea of, you know, you're too sad to be able to take care of yourself. So let us take care
2: of you now. That's right. That's right. Um, and we were Kind of, we left off somewhere between the medieval period and the Renaissance, yeah. but there are there were all kinds of interesting dinners and feasts that occurred. Yeah, right?
1: so we've got people eating bread, but then these um, feasts, uh, these funerals, particularly if it was someone who was a big landowner, a big lord, turn into enormous feasts. I've got a couple historic accounts that I want to read I think are interesting to give you an example. This is from Avril, so a funeral feast in 1309, and here's what was served or what was used in the, the couple days that the guests were there mourning the deceased. One and a half butts of cider, five pigs, one hare, five sheep, 13 hens, 19 geese, one and a half gallons of oysters, two hogs, nine capons, one and a half carcasses of beef, four bacons besides wine, ale, eggs, and bread given to the poor and friends, and a fee of 66 shillings and eight pence to the chaplain. Fifty pounds of wax was also used, presumably for candles. So they can really be several-day affairs, because people are now traveling from far away.
2: It sounds like the whole town came to the castle or something. Yeah, and (laughs) And it's really
1: to show off the power of this family too. But then on the other hand, I've got this one from the 17th century, and it's from a diary of uh, an avril in 1673, which the author considered, quote-unquote, rather shabby, because all he got was nothing but a bit of cheese, a draft of wine, a piece of rosemary, and a pair of gloves. So he was, like, not happy with the food that he got. And by then, the 17th century, there's also this expectation of souvenirs. You might get a piece of rosemary, you might get a flower, you might get gloves, you might get a handkerchief, or you might get a cookie, as we would call them in America, or a cake, wrapped in a very special
2: wrapping, too. Mm -hmm. And these wrappings were often, if they, well, been later times, they would be black tissue paper, but in those times, they would often be printed pieces of paper. Yeah,
1: so this is a tradition that is in England and in America in the 18th and 19th century, and they're called funeral biscuits. And the tradition has been rather hard to pin down because although recipes for these cakes appear in cookbooks from the 18th and 19th century, they're often not labeled as such. They might just be labeled caraway cakes. So you have to know what you're looking for. Sometimes in uh, written documents, in uh, handwritten recipe books, they might be labeled funeral cakes. Mm -hmm. And they're often flavored with caraway, sometimes with orange, sometimes with ginger, sometimes with molasses, too. Um, Early on, they would have been made at home, perhaps by a family member of the deceased. But by the middle of the 19th century, you could order them out from bakeries who advertised that they could make you funeral biscuits at a moment's notice. And you could pick out poems or pictures or Bible verses or have the name and uh, date of the departed too. and these would be printed on the wrappers, they'd be sealed up with black wax. Black wax, yes. These little, were known here in New Amsterdam as Doet Cokes, um as the death, Dutch, cakes. Exactly. Yeah, death cakes. From exactly. death the cakes.
2: Dutch, the Dutch were um, so much the uh, the influence of our, our baking in this country.
1: Really, yeah. they really brought a lot of delicious things, and one of those is cookies. Dot dot cookies. Exactly. Yeah. So these come from, uh, it, the words literally mean death cakes, and um, in some contexts it seems like they're mean- They mean to be eaten. In others, they were these really big, elaborately um, stamped cookies, too. They weren't cut. They had special stamps with um, symbolic meanings, like a rose was often used for a child. A rooster was used sometimes to symbolize rebirth. Crosses and hearts were popular themes as well, and so the cookies were molded in these. Uh, and then they were these very kind of hard, dense shortbread cookies that you could eat or you could take home. And they were this
2: memento mori of the occasion and the departed. Yeah. Well, prayer cards are a little easier, and they yes. <laughs> take yeah. those home. Interesting. Um, so, what about? I know there are a lot of people who have special recipes, as the as the poem I read referred to. It's a a category in cookbooks, funeral Mm. foods. Mm. There are specific foods that You know, certain, well, as I mentioned, casseroles before that are particularly served at funerals. Yeah,
1: I think the most famous one uh, in the modern era is known as Mormon funeral potatoes, um, which I think is rather marvelous and has a marvelous story. They're so famous in Utah that when the Olympics were held in Salt Lake City, they released a sort of commemorative pins of Utah culture and history, and one of them was a casserole of new mormon funeral potatoes so they're absolutely iconic out west and what they are is um I mean, horrible and delicious. They're uh, frozen hash browns mixed with uh, cream of chicken or mushroom—I can't remember—soup and oh, We'll hear about it if you can't remember exactly. And we'll hear about cheese it. <laughs> and like a crunchy crust on top, and then you bake it. So it's just super fatty and salty and soothing. I think um,
2: Wisconsin calls those cheesy potatoes. Cheesy
1: potatoes. <laughs> right. And when I've served them at talks, too, people are like, "Oh, my mom would make these for Thanksgiving." Right. So they have—they appear in other places. They're a pretty basic casserole, but the they're so famous in a way in Utah is because Mormon culture is so focused on community and so they even have these sort of like Casserole commissions, where there's people that band together, that when a family is in need or is experienced a death, like they show up at your door with casseroles. Mm-hmm. So it comes from this this taking care of each other culture. That's an important part of Mormonism, that results in casseroles, and then resulted in this particular casserole. Which I, I read a great quote online where someone said, "If you know they aren't served and they aren't served the right way at my funeral, I'm going
2: to come back and haunt you as a ghost." <laughs> which I think is right, great. Yeah. Well, in, indeed, um, the religious. Um, uh, traditions took over, but there are, particularly, and I think in the Protestant religions, there are the church ladies' guilds, and mm-hmm. they were always assigned. You know, and the churches had these big kitchens, so they were always assigned with making lots of casseroles. As soon as they knew that somebody in the community died, they'd yeah. all gather at the church. These, you know, the ladies and, and of course, the ladies and right. cook the casseroles. Right. I had read somewhere. I don't know if you have mm-hmm. run across it at all. Something about, um, you know, when funeral homes then took over, you know, the the wakes were always held in the home. Right. Um, And then when funeral homes came into being, uh, the wife of the, no, the wife of the funeral director, the Mm. funeral director was a man, Mm -hmm. the wife would bake bread and bring it to the family? I don't know if you've ever no, run I've across that. No, i not
1: necessarily heard that. But I think that the transition between death in the home and death in a funeral home is a very interesting one, too. Yeah, yeah. Because even just saying that, you know, that is something that I already mentioned was done by family members of the deceased. And now even this idea of the bread baking, you know, seems to be uh, going to the funeral director. A lot of that transition really happened in places like New York City. New York was a big one. We live in small apartments here, and so whereas traditionally for all the hundreds if not thousands of years past... People were sick and died and were mourned in their homes. Now people didn't necessarily have room Mm -hmm. to have that sort of funeral celebration event in their home. So it's in places like New York that we see the rise of the funeral home, a place that you can rent out essentially to have that same celebration. And it was also um, people, you know, see us as being very detached from death in the 21st century. But I look at it as we've gotten, we've arrived where we are because of everything that's happened in the past Doing those events in your home was very difficult. You know, having a loved one pass away in your home is difficult, mourning them there. And often what that meant for people who had houses and fine parlors where those events would take place, instead of being a room where joy could be experienced, they were a, a continuing memorial to the people that had departed and a continual reminder. And it also seems that that was just very hard for people. And so they were relieved to be able to move that out of their private space and put it in a more public space and it was easier for them to move on in the morning process now I've read the story might be apocryphal but at the same time it makes sense that the term living room instead of calling that room the parlor comes from the fact, um, and I've seen a reference for it. I have to dig up. It was like Ladies Home Journal. They said that now this is a room that we can live in, so let us call it the living room. So it was
2: that removal of the culture of oh, death yeah, from the home. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and then it's interesting that, that at a certain point in time, and I'm not sure when it occurred, um, that food was banned from these funeral homes. Yeah,
1: which is such a funny thing. Well,
2: there were reasons. The reasons were that they yeah. said... Um, it was in direct competition with the restaurants nearby because I guess after mm. the wave, after the funeral, everyone would depart, and go to these restaurants, and right. have their feasts. And also, there was the fear of bugs and disease. Right. Uh, so that has been as we s- got into this very modern yeah. hygienic era. Yeah. yeah. so it's just last month that Massachusetts, I guess, just passed that, they, that food could be brought in, and there. Of course, then you know they're wondering on, on how much, what to, to what extreme, and do you do yeah. just you know coffee and cake and feast? No alcohol is still on in, in, in many of them because we know those some of those Irish wigs could get pretty that's well something rowdy. else that the Catholics had a problem
1: with too. The Catholic Church didn't like the Irish wigs, yeah. but it they were Irish tradition tends to be more around um, having a drink with everyone than it did to be with eating, eating with everyone. It was just a way to mourn. Uh-huh. You know, it's funny when I talk about this in public and I talk about this topic with classes, I often end by mentioning mentioning that there are funeral homes, particularly in the South, and one in Texas, I believe, uh, that one funeral home invited Starbucks to open up a chain within their funeral home. Right. And it didn't work out. I double-checked online, I followed up, and they have their own coffee house that's open to the public at any time within the boundaries of their funeral home. And uh, people, students, they, they're, they're kind of freaked out by that. They think it's so strange. But the funeral director's point was people want a place to not be in that funeral space. The directors want a place to meet that's comfortable. People need something nourishing, something comforting, something familiar. Right. And so why not have that within the space? Maybe we have come to a point where we have now become too removed from death that we can't even understand what someone who is going through the process of mourning might need. And right. that's exactly what a funeral mm-hmm. director knows.
2: Well, with these now these um, the removal of the bands of food, I'm sure you're going to see you know more yeah. more coffee shop things like that opening up yeah. in in there and and, of course, the the tradition of uh, a feast, if you want to call them feasts, but large dinners, because right. families say people travel, families get together, and then, okay, the, the wake, the burial, it's over, and what do you do? You're together with all the family. Mm-hmm. You have to eat. So right. it turns into a large dinner. Uh, call it a feast, if you will. I right. mean, it's, you know, And certainly celebrating good memories. Right. right? Exactly. Once the sins have been eaten and taken right. away. Exactly. <laughs> right.
1: Exactly. And this the fact of having food there. It's still this really interesting symbolism, uh, not just spiritual spiritual nourishment for you and the departed and also this idea of yeah this this consumption, the body and the blood and all of that strong religious symbolism is there even in our not religious society.
2: Right. Interesting material and as I say there was I was astounded by how many, you know, like random facts I could find. Yeah. As you say, no no nope. And great scholarly work. I'm sure yeah. we can dig in and find something that someone has written about, but here you go, folks, students looking for a dissertation. Seriously? This could be an interesting
1: topic. There's yeah. been a couple essays, there's a couple chapters, there's resources from the 19th century that I've been able to pull quotes from and things like that. And
2: recipes.
1: Recipes, but, yeah. exactly, but especially in the last 200 years, a lot of it is very sort of sketchy, modern oral tradition. So it would be really nice for someone, yeah, grad students out there, <laughs> scholars. To really track all this information down and do a comprehensive history of funeral food, I think it's valuable. And I just don't think it's something much like food history in general. As you know, mm-hmm. Linda, only very recently has become accepted as scholarly research. Right. And I still get young men and women coming to me and saying, you know, I'm an anthropologist, I'm a historian, I want to work in food, and my department is not letting me. So it's there's still a little bit of a fight, I think, to That's get right. this as, but to me, food is so powerful and so telling of who we are as humans. So I think, honestly. The reason there has not been a scholarly document yet is because it's not an accepted topic. It's
2: taboo right. in many, many right. ways. Well, death in particular, yes, yeah. and, and it is. Sarah, always interesting, Thank you. always informed. Thank, Thank you so much for joining me, and thanks for listening to A Taste of the Past. And I want to remind our listeners that Heritage Radio Network is a member supported. Radio Station. and We are a 501c3. So if you like what you hear, and we have so many programs on our website, just look and see, go to the website at heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart. We need your help. Thanks.